Welcome inside the war room. Ryan Ray here, as always, as always, as always. Thank you so much. If you could, if you could, if you could, if you could, grab your phone, look at it, and drop the five star wherever you may be. I won't even run an ad on this episode. Just looking for some reviews always helps spread the word. Today's guest is Jake Bright. I talked to Jake, oh, it's been about two months ago now. I just got bogged down in the queue, so um, it's good to get an episode out, and it's good to get an episode that was really enjoyable. Um, Jake is a kind of a thought leader in the African space. He co-authored the book, The Next Africa, and is also the president of JRB Ventures. He also writes um, for TechCrunch and all kinds of other stuff. He is all over the place. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Jake Bright. Well, Jake, it is great to get you on the podcast. Finally, we've been working on this for some time. How are you doing today? All good. Thanks, Ryan. Okay, so you caught my attention. Um, I come across your book, The Next Africa, that you co-authored, An Emerging Continent Becomes a Global Powerhouse. And it's that subtitle that really kind of caught my attention because I'm a big believer that Africa is where the action is in the next, you know, we can put a time frame on it. Um, I know, you know, 50, 100, 20, depends on how things go. But, you know, I have four kids. My youngest is two. So by the time she's 36, I think Africa will look fundamentally different. And by the time her kid's 36, um, Africa might just be the global powerhouse. Um, so that's what caught my attention to you. So thank you for the book. What made you want to write this book? Well, the origins of the book had to do with Aubrey and I, co-author who, who has an extensive background uh, with Africa. And both of us are, we're different, but we're similar in that um, each of us, are, she's from Colorado, I'm from Michigan. Neither of us have any family background with Africa at all, because Americans usually, if they, if they orientate to Africa at all, it's usually in two ways. Um, you know, it's their parents have some dealings, either as missionaries or in, in some extractive industry, or they did development work or Peace Corps. We did neither. Uh, but both of us had an orientation toward the continent that was focused on business and technology. And what we saw was we saw some profound changes in Africa's private sector and its technology sector and also some cultural trends that we felt were gonna significantly change the continent um, in many of its countries, but also it was gonna change, these things were gonna come together and change Africa's orientation toward the world. So we had that and it's very rare that you, you capture uh, something that's like a big change in global affairs and uh, global politics and global business when very few people are covering it. So we decided it was time to run with it and tell the story and the stories that we've been picking up, uh, traveling and working on the continent for many years. Yeah, it, it's interesting because um, Africa, in my experience, is, is it's so hard to describe, right? So um, when I'm talking about it, I say, well, Africa, then I had to always clarify, you know, Africa is a continent, it's not a country. And then even the countries have their all individual uniqueness. But one thing I have seen, especially from Sub-Saharan Africa, um, is maybe more of an more of a concept um, being talked about about uniting? Can they work together? Can they get past some of these historical differences that they've had? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think in the coming years, decades, maybe we'll see a more united sub-Saharan South Africa? Well, yeah, but you know, I'd I'd like to 
focus a bit on your your first point because it's something that we it's something that anybody that approaches Africa or I, I think any country mm. um, needs to consider uh, as a writer, as a business person, as an author, that we're we're dealing with you know huge, diverse um, spaces and. On one hand, you have to give acknowledgement to that diversity and the fact that there's no monolithic view of Africa, which by the way, compared to other continents, when you get into countries and there's a billion two people, 54 countries, a bunch of uh, subcultures within each of those countries, it's an incredibly big, diverse and populated continent. But at the same time, there are some cross-cutting trends that you're able to highlight that allow you to both respect that diversity um, while at the same time, um, draw some, some conclusions, right? Um, because if you don't do that, then it's, it's really hard to write a book and uh, to, to have a conversation or come up with any kind of definitive you know, trend lines for, for any big place you're capturing. So going back and forth from that, that wide lens, to, we, we called it, we, we tried to capture our view of Africa in, in contemporary times from a wide lens, like a high level but frequently then go into to a street level view, right? So that's how we approach it. Um, in terms of the continent coming together, uh, one of the trends that we tracked is that, you know, you have a continent that in many ways was fragmented um, by country, by political block, and also disrupted by a lot of negative trends, particularly coming, coming out of colonialism in the eighties and nineties. Uh, and what you you do have is, in many respects, we characterized Africa as a continent as a less than three percent reality, meaning that it, with this, you know, a lot of this big wave of globalization that gripped the world post Cold War, um, digitization and um, bringing countries together and free trade and harmonizing standards and finance, etc., a lot of that bypassed Africa. Uh, and what you've seen now is both internally with some of these regional uh, trade blocks that you're talking about that are becoming more formalized, but also with Africa uh, and the rest of the world is you have Africa connecting at a rapid level to the global economy and to other continents in ways um, that it, it really wasn't in many respects, you know, the past 20 to 30 years. Yeah, and I like how you kind of categorize the kind of the wide lens and the, and the street view there. I think it's important maybe, um, and the reason I brought that up was for the listeners. Um, I know before I went to Africa, I was in, I'm not an Africa expert by any stretch of imagination. I said before I went, I did not realize just the diversity that you could find inside of one country, one cult, uh, or various countries, you know, the differences between multiple countries, and just from pure ignorance, right? Not not having studied the subject or, or been there. And so it was so um stunning and, and and it was beautiful in a lot of ways and so i always try to make that distinction um when i'm when i'm talking publicly because there's a lot of people like me that who just that you know have never been there never thought about it and so you kind of you're not really sure um how to categorize these things and so it, it's good to be reminded for the audience so obviously someone like yourself is uh is very in tune with that but for the listener standpoint we are making more um we're not talking about you know um the narrow stuff per se all the time because it is too hard um, the other thing that you mentioned there that I found interesting is Africa connecting to the world. And I, I've kind of been on this, this, this kick for a while, which is that we're not in the 50s and 60s anymore. And we really have to think about the world that way. And what that means for Africa is um, my friends in Africa, I can 
communicate with via WhatsApp right now. You know, when, when something big happens in the U.S., they can ask me or in Africa, wherever they're at, vice versa. Um, the, the way knowledge is, 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 is transferred um, is not like it was, historically speaking. And so when you talk about um, some of the atrocities that have happened in Africa, part of that problem was is that the general population could not get access to the outside world. It, it was very much top-down being pushed upon them. Um, how much do you think that might help Africa come past some of the problems they've had? Because they do have access now. And there's a lot of people there, a lot of opinions, and access to all sorts of information. Well, look, connectivity is a mixed bag. And we saw that with the Arab Spring. And you're starting to see that um, in Africa, in some of the, the countries that have the most technology activity going on. And I, I'll just name those. The countries that have big uh, tech activity, and unsurprisingly, many of the much of that is aligned with other things, meaning the countries with big populations and the countries that have the largest economies. Those countries are South Africa, they're Nigeria, they're Kenya. Um, you also have countries like Ethiopia that are coming on. Um, they're connecting rapidly, but what you see is, yeah, connectivity allows people to communicate. Um, connectivity has has played a role in politics, especially social media in Nigeria and Kenya in particular, has started to play a role in the last uh, couple of elections. But on top of that, greater connectivity, and that this also, greater connectivity means that one of the big waves that's happening in Africa, and it's not, connectivity also means that in many ways, Africa wasn't connected to the rest of the world economy on more conventional things like trade or even bond markets or capital markets. But where you're seeing connectivity pick up now is just structurally with uh, information communication technology. So internet penetration rates in many African countries are improving, right? Um, more people are, have, have access to internet. And also a big one there is the cost. Um, the cost is going down. Um, Africa also has very rapid uh, penetration on devices and smartphone penetration. So you have countries like the ones I named, Ghana. I mean, South Africa has always been an outlier. South Africa actually led the US on mobile penetration for a while. But Ghana, South Africa, um, places like Cote d'Ivoire, you have people that are connected on devices. Uh, and yeah, in some ways, there have been positives to that. It's more connectivity with the outside world. There's more ways to connect and communicate culturally. But you also see um, disinformation and misinformation rearing its ugly head. And this is the, the other side of the mixed bag and starting to come into play in places like Nigeria in particular, where you've had outside actors and Facebook has had to do several dumps of outside actors who are now trying to use connectivity to manipulate elections um, toward their, their interests. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's good and it's bad. And I think you know, you, you see that play out on the continent in its own way, similarly to how we've learned our lesson um, in the U.S. about, you know, internet and connectivity. Right. I guess the only thing I would, my question would be is, is that, um, you know, without the access to information, the, what they were being, what people were being told historically was very, could have been a lot more propaganda, 100% propaganda, whereas now you potentially have the access to get outside of the propaganda. Of course, you could be um, you know, deceived or tricked or, or whatever, or influenced by it, but you at least have the option. Whereas before you really had kind of the, um, the pre-internet age, if you will, 
uh, very much a top-down solution coming to you. And so it's kind of hard to navigate those streams. Would, would you, so that's why I think it's the, the net positive there. Look, I think it's a tough call. I think that um, right now the entire world, and I, I don't want to diverge too much from, from Africa, I think there, there's a conundrum across the entire world where we had this sense that more information was better. And I think that there's a, a question and the, the world is dealing with something that on the timeline of human history, we've never seen about whether or not more information is better. And if you get to a point where too much unre unregulated information um, available to be sent to people and pushed to people in multiple ways, uh, multiple times throughout the day uh, is, is something that can be both, uh, you know, is it, a, is it a pro or a con? I think the jury's out on that. And I think that's one of the questions for the whole world right now. Um, but it's playing out in different ways in Africa. And I mean, on, on the, just on the positive side, to, to what you're saying, I guess, to, to your argument, you have had several instances of countries, um, notably Cameroon, uh, Ethiopia, um, just shutting down the government, shutting down internet in response to free information, uh, free flow of information that didn't particularly benefit the current ruling class, right? So in that sense, um, yeah, it was harder for, I'd say, people that were considered as bad actors to continue to do what they were doing <laughs> with impunity uh, and dictate uh, the flow of information across their populations. Yeah, and Cameroon was one of the countries I was thinking about. We had on someone um, from Southern Cameroon, oh gosh, 10 episodes ago, and they were talking about um, you know, what's going on in Southern Cameroon and, and trying to paint the picture. Now, I'm not an expert on Northern and Southern Cameroon, but it was, it was at least an interesting, um, um, it, was, it was interesting to hear what they were saying and, and at least the allegations that they were making against the, the Northern Cameroon, uh, uh, Cameroon government. It was okay. Same government, different, different, different language. Um, anyways, and so stuff like that, I guess, I think that those are things that it, it's when you, you know, one of the things when, when I hear um, ambassadors speak or, or, or if I read books from um, Africans, um, they kind of talk about how they were taken advantage of, rightfully so, for, for many, many years. And so when I look at that, it's like, okay, well, that's the system in which the, the world operated for so long. And, and now we're in this new era, to your point, which there's so much information. It has changed so rapidly. Um, but the old system was clearly broken and, and trying to figure out the new system is, is a different step. So, uh, but anyways, you, you mentioned, um, you, you know, Nigeria and some of these more emerging markets. And, and one of the things that I, I think is talk about technology and internet penetration. I was talking to some folks in, in Gambia and they were saying that they had like, you know, two or three cell phones because they got free minutes or free plan from, from these hours to these hours. And so they'd have like three or four different cell phone plans to, to make sure they could have the lowest cost cell phone bill and talk during the same, uh, to talk you know, to people during, during certain hours. And it was quite interesting to think about um, that and how that will work itself out. Because one of the things you hear in the West is that, that Africa or emerging markets will have the ability to kind of leapfrog past where we were because they don't have to go through the same development. But then you see, it actually creates these unique problems like, hey, uh, you have to have four cell phones so you can have a cheap cell phone bill. Well, the mobile environment's different from country to country. Um, what you had for a while is you had, you, had low, you had lower mobile internet or mobile penetration, meaning there are fewer people that had mobile phones. 
then in the late 2000s, um, you had greater mobile penetration, but it was mostly uh, feature phones. And that meant there, you know, there really weren't internet capabilities. And there were few carriers who actually were providing plans. So people were basically buying SIM cards and you played the SIM card game uh, where you, you would buy minutes on a SIM card from a, a roadside vendor. I saw this in Sierra Leone and Nigeria and Kenya. Um, you would pick whoever was cheapest and then you would simply, you know, you would, you would throw the SIM card away once your minutes expired. But what you have now in some of the major economies, and South Africa, I should mention, is an outlier in that, again, they, they were further, faster to adapt individuals having mobile phones on formal plans than the U.S. was. But in Kenya, in Ghana, um, in Nigeria, uh, places like Cote d'Ivoire, you have big providers that are bringing people onto plans. Um, they're opening up the ability for them to have affordable monthly plans and also to get um, smartphone devices. Most of those are made, most of the smartphones being used in China are made by Techno, which ultimately rolls up to a Chinese country. But the short of it is that is it's becoming less street, you know, street by street, um, card by card, uh, sorry, SIM card by SIM card. And you're having more of a situation where similar to what we have in the US, people have a smartphone. They have a monthly plan um, with you know, fairly open data uh, and they're able to have a lot of the functionality and the options that we have you know, here in the US or in Europe on, on smartphones. Okay, you have a chapter in the book um, called Capital is King. Um, and this is a term, if you go to um, you know, these, these business meetings or whatever, there's always talk about investors, capital. Um, Obviously, and this is one of the things that I've tried to do in, in some of these meetings is maybe demystify some of the problems around um, you know, capital or taking capital to Africa. But talk about why it's so important and, and how to think about it in terms of, from the U.S. perspective, investing your capital in Africa um, in, 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 in the, the, not, not, not all the steps, but some of the steps you should work through before you invest in Africa. Well, the capital is king chapter ties into, and I didn't fully fill it out when I talked about it, it ties into this disconnected Africa and we called it the less than 3% world. And what that broke down to is that uh, pre-modern times or even just even the last decade, when it came to this globalized economy and the marks for a globalized economy, you know, digitization and trade, um, you know, global Google hits. Uh, and, and the big one to your question is FDI that in almost every category where you look at connectivity in a global economy, Africa had less than 3%, right? So it had less than 3% of global Google hits. It had less than 3% of global trade. And on capital, it had less, as a continent, Africa until recently had less than 3% of global FDI, right? And that's where that comes in. And the capital is king, you know, title, really got to the, the fact that um, most, when you measure power and the ability to create and generate wealth and grow businesses and have those ripple effects that in most cases, although it's, it's highly imperfect, uh, lead to a better way of living and increase discretionary income, et cetera, et cetera. A big factor for that is capital. Who gets capital? Where do people invest? Where does business, you know, where does CapEx go? 
And when you're in a situation where you're in a country or a region that gets almost none of that or the lowest amount in the world, you're really sitting at the bottom of the totem pole in many respects and being able to have capital deployed in all those directions that for the most part bring about positive benefits you know, to cities, to countries, to societies. And one of the things we tracked with The Next Africa, and by the way, the book was published in 2015, uh, but we've been able to see a lot of the trends that we saw and the things we predicted play out, is you've seen a mass mobilization of capital going to Africa. Um, one, of that, one of those ways is both um, you know, global bond markets, African countries weren't, most of them weren't even issuing sovereign bonds. They couldn't even play in that market until we wrote the book. But in, any, in an even bigger trend, you have a doubling, a quadrupling, you know, 304% increase in venture capital being deployed in Africa, toward Africa, toward tech-related startups. Um, so those are pretty big developments. And the, the, the raw numbers, like the real values, aren't huge, right? So for example, um, the total VC that's going to African startups on an annual basis is just recently and probably this year is going to surpass $2 billion for the first time, right? So $2 billion for an entire continent. I mean, that's like a good day, <laughs> a good day or a week in Silicon Valley. Exactly. But if you look at where, where things were five years ago, it's, it's a two or 300, 400% increase which means in year-over-year -year, um, values, you have some things in Africa happening, particularly on venture capital, that it makes it the fastest-growing tech uh, region in the world. So when you think of venture capital in the U.S., you think of something that you know, is likely going to have a pretty high failure rate, but the few winners are going to be so such big that you know kind of covers your losses. Um, in Africa, how, how have you seen, that's the space I don't follow much over there. Is it very similar where it's kind of a, a high failure rate, but the winners are big, or do they have a better, uh, a, a higher success rate? Right now, it's so early days in African tech that you can't even do the scorecard yet, right? Meaning a lot of the, I mean, you really, you're, you're talking, and again, I'll say that South Africa is an outlier. Kenya got a bit of a jump start, but you're talking about tech a tech ecosystem and sub ecosystems. Um, and again, the big, the big markets for VC in Africa are Nigeria, Kenya, South Africa, um, Ghana to a lesser extent. And now you're seeing some of the Francophone countries come on like Senegal or Cote d'Ivoire. But you're really talking about a five to 10 year lifespan here, right? Which in a, in a VC life cycle isn't very much. So in many cases, what you had is you had just the initial first investment, and then you, you're largely in an incubation period. Um, there are people like myself who both in the book and also was, you know, one of my big things I carried over from the book was to write, become a lead correspondent at TechCrunch on Africa. People like myself that were predicting that certain performance events would happen. Um, and now you've just started to have some of those, right? So you've had some big acquisitions like Stripe bought uh, the startup Paystack. You've had at least one public company, uh, Jumia, which is an e-commerce venture that went public on the New York Stock Exchange. And then this year you have a number of investment rounds that have minted a number of unicorns. And I'll say again, Ryan, that like five years ago, these were just ifs. These were predictions that we had that this stuff would ever happen. So you're having the first performance events 
which validates that there's something in this ecosystem. But to be totally fair and, and to your point, if you're a geographically agnostic investor that doesn't have some greater interest in Africa right now, um, the performance scorecard probably indicates that if all you care about is returns uh, in the short to, to, to medium term, uh, you're probably going to want to invest somewhere else. And that's why outside the US and Europe, you know, some of the biggest investment in technology startups in emerging markets has, has been more toward places like India or Asia than Africa right now. But there are longer term trends and there's a lot to be said for um, VCs that play a long game. And my argument is that on a long game, you can't ignore this continent when it comes to tech development, not just for people who want to uh, get returns on investment, but there's a strategic part of investment, i.e. you know, corporate venture that invests for strategic regions, reasons. You can't ignore the continent um, from a long-term strategic view um, when you're looking at uh, technology and venture capital investment. You know, in, in hearing that, is, it kind of reminds me of the first time I went to South Africa, um, uh, 14, I think it was, 13, 14, I can't remember. And I went to uh, ESCOM, and they were showing me around, and they pulled up this GIS software application that they had partnered with Esri uh, to build. And it was yeah. better than anything I had seen in the U.S. I looked at a lot of applications, and it was like, oh, my gosh, guys. <laughs> I remember trying to get a hold of Esri, see if they would duplicate it for someone else I ever could. It was, it was like cutting edge. And then... Uh, I don't know, a couple years later, I went back and I found out that they don't have the, um, the 411, uh, 811, 411, whatever it is, call before you dig, you know, like those, you know, like, um, hey, uh, if you got a pipeline or a, a fire optic cable or whatever it is, you got to call that number and they come out there and locate it before you dig a pipeline. And they have all these line strikes. And I'm like, guys, this is actually pretty easy technology that could be built and would save, um, you know, hundreds of, you know, mi okay, millions of dollars, at least maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars, depending on how severe these line strikes are. And they didn't have that. And so you kind of you kind of have these two weird things. One is this very much cutting edge technology that they invested. I don't know how much to get done, but was top of the line. And on the other hand, something as basic as the uh, the 811 system, or is it four, I can't remember, 411, whatever it is, uh, they didn't even have that. And it's like, wow, okay, so there's a huge opportunity here that could make you know a lot of money. And over here, you have this cutting edge stuff. And so it was really weird to kind of get into that because in the U.S., you know, you, you kind of have all of that. And we're trying to build on top of that. Yeah, look, I mean, what you're getting to is you're getting to the crux of the challenges and opportunities and the conundrum in African tech, right? So from one level, these infrastructural challenges and deficiencies, they create huge opportunities. You mentioned leapfrogging. In some cases, um, technology applications in Africa, whether it has to do with education or finance or logistics, in some cases, I've, I've written in some of my writing that it's hard to call it leapfrogging because leapfrogging uh, implies that there's legacy infrastructure to jump over. And in many cases, um, some of these, these technology startups are, they're, they're originating infrastructure, right? It's new and it's not actually leapfrogging. I mean, maybe it's leapfrogging things that we have, but it's not leapfrogging anything that existed before. So those are huge opportunities, but the, 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 the complicated side is that the, the operating environment challenges in many of these big markets are so big that um, there's a point where they become a huge disadvantage to startups in Nigeria or Kenya 
or South Africa and Ghana. And what you're starting to see now, and it's something that I've talked about and predicted, is you're starting to see a founder class uh, start to engage political leaders. And when I first started covering startups in Nigeria, I would talk to some of the founders like, you know, Sim Shigaya, who founded Conga and now has an education startup, um, or I talked to some of the other tech founders. And, you know, Nigeria historically has a lot of problems with business and government, you know, the big C word corruption, and a lot of that connects to extractives. In the early days, the founders um, who were founding e-commerce startups or fintech startups, they really just, they, they require that people have mobile phones and that there was some level of connectivity. They actually, they actually were happy that they didn't need to engage in gov with government because wading into government as a business in that country for them was just this complicated prospect um, that they didn't want to do. But there's this point now where um, if you need certain uh, you know, operational basics like electricity and road infrastructure for your, your e-commerce delivery vehicles, and also just the basic confidence of your investors, that your country's not an entire political and economic basket case, there's this inevitability that some of these founders who really want to create these companies and make them successful in Africa, but also potentially go global, they have to engage government because they need certain things of them um, to create the operating environment for them to you know, generate return on investment and to scale their companies to the point that they want to. And that's what you're seeing starting to happen now. How that all plays out, I don't know. But it's something that I often flag when people ask me, what am I looking at as, as next things to watch for in Africa's tech ecosystem? I often say that tech is colliding with and tech founders are going to start engaging with and getting involved in the political system. And just one last point on that. That's where I see particularly tech and the tech business model potentially having more impact on the continent and in many of these countries than you know, simply tech and business and that they may profoundly change the power dynamic in these countries because tech founders becoming millionaires and billionaires, a lot of these individuals are very different than the millionaires and billionaires who have held sway in these countries you know, for the past 50 years. So it's definitely something to watch. Yeah, thinking about that, um, one of the things that, that I, was, I was reminded of, um, again, just kind of thinking about the, the kind of the, the uniqueness of, of Africa, at least, um, is when I went to South Africa, they had this this program called WhatsApp. And I remember going, what the heck is WhatsApp? I never had used it. And they're like, that's all we use for text messaging. So I downloaded it so I could talk to them. And then I realized instantly that it was light years ahead of I have an iPhone, iMessage, or standard text messaging. It was light years ahead of it. And so it was really weird. Again, it's kind of one of those weird moments where, now that's a U.S.-based technology, if I understand correctly. But, but, but what they were used to using um, is not what most of most American uses because WhatsApp has like 95 to 97% market penetration in some of these countries we talked about, Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's, it's really weird. Like if they came and picked up an Android, I don't have a Droid, but uh, or at least a cross text between an iPhone and an Android and started using it, they'd be like, my gosh, y'all were in the Stone Ages here. <laughs> it's, it's really just a weird dynamic. No, WhatsApp is king. Uh, it's been king on the continent for a while. And it was a case where, you know, something developed in the U.S. had a stronger use case. Um, I, don't, I don't know the full origins of all the R&D of WhatsApp, but it definitely had a stronger use case, I think, than anyone imagined mm -hmm. in Africa than its home market. 
Um, but it's just an example of how, you know, certain like, I mean, that mobile money comes up frequently. Mobile money was, was really pioneered and scaled on a big level in West Africa. And it arose out of infrastructure constraints, right? Like the, we, we interviewed the CEO, the late Bob Collymore in the book, the CEO of Safaricom, that is the company that's a purveyor of M-Pesa mobile money, which is one of the, the global case studies on development of mobile money. You know, he talked about it. He pulled out the old, you know, invention is, is, is you know, the, what is necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. They developed M-Pesa largely because of a lack of any kind of retail banking system in Kenya. And one of the ways that Bob, the examples that Bob Collymore gave me was for people in Kenya, when they did some of the research early on, the most common way that you would get money to people around the country, um, if you needed to send school fees or, or something like that, this was around you know, like 2003, 2004, was Kenyans would go to the bus stop and give bus drivers bags of cash with, you know, with the label on it, hoping that the bus driver, <laughs> when he got to the bus stop of your relative, you know, up country in Kenya, <laughs> would drop off the right bag of cash. That's probably the least efficient <laughs> and secure way, you know, to, <laughs> to transfer money, but it, it had to do with the fact that there wasn't a retail, you know, banking structure and M-Pesa was developed around that to basically allow people to transfer money with, uh, you know, through text messages. And it made Kenya a global case study in, in um, you know, mobile money technology and ended up making Kenya that almost to the point where people are tired of it, that almost any discussion now of scaling of mobile money in the world has some reference to M-Pesa, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's that two-sided nature of, um, you know, operating environment, creating opportunities for technology, um, but also at the same time, <laughs> there's a point where, where you need some kind of operating environment to, to do the same thing, to create opportunities with technology. Is that one of the advantages that Africa has, which is that you have all these countries that all are right beside each other, um, and so you might go to country A and their policies won't allow this, but then country B will, and you kind of almost create that that competitive nature, which is, hey, hold on, it's working over there. We should adopt that. Whereas, you know, in the U.S., it's just one big country, and so we, you know, our borders are Canada and Mexico, but in Africa, you have all these nations bordering. Do you think that will be a benefit in the future to kind of spur on innovation? There are some benefits. Um, one thing we talked about in the book and we predicted was that uh, you, you, have, you have a race to the bottom that can happen when a country declines, when in terms of weakening institutions and corruption and decaying infrastructure. But one of the things we talked about, particularly with tech, was how at least one Kenya or one country that I mentioned, Kenya, in tandem with M-Pesa mobile money, and they had a couple other things happen around a, a couple, you know, globally recognized startups and iHub, the incubator, the tech incubator that was founded there by some, by, you know, Oreo Cola and Juliana Rotish and Eric Herzman that became, it, but basically it all put Kenya on the map as a tech hub in East Africa uh, and brought a lot of global attention is that it also created a bit of competition between countries. And you saw that you start to see a race going up where Kenya's government um, really helped enable 
that tech boom that came in the country around you know 2007 on. Um, they created one one thing they did is they embraced internet connectivity, and they even used state funds to uh, fund the Teams cable, which a really innovative minister that we interviewed in the book, Patanga and Demo, um, championed that. So they they improved their internet capacity uh, from the government. They created one of the the early known like a, a minister for information communication technology, which by the way in Africa they say ICT is synonymous with tech. So you saw a commitment by the government to create an actual like cabinet post uh, for somebody who was committed to talking to the techies, to asking startup founders what they needed and creating an infrastructure for it. And pan-Africanally, other countries took note and you had other countries that followed suit, uh, you know, Nigeria, Ghana, many of these countries as a result now at least feel some sense that they need to pay lip service to at least, or on another level, uh, try to enable their technology environment and show a commitment to it. And the latest thing now, beyond many of those countries having created posts to have people, to have uh, cabinet posts or, or minister posts for people who, who have some responsibility toward fostering an enabling tech environment, they've also started to promulgate startup acts, which are basically their, their legislation that's being put together in tandem with input from startup founders of how on a policy level, what things can we do uh, to enable and create a better environment for the startups in our country. How much do you think that U.S. policy impacts our willingness to go and invest or work in Africa? I mean, that's a tough one. Um, I've had, you know, I've had interaction periods of interaction and non-interaction with the U.S. government in Africa, going back to when I was, you know, I was a junior staffer when the African Growth and Opportunity Act passed. Um, When it comes to technology, I don't think people are waiting around for the U.S. government, but, and, and what I would say is that when it comes to Africa's tech scene and the founders, one trend to try to you know, to try to draw some more, put some more example to this, this, this huge diverse continent that we we're talking about and, and give it some, some color and some more granularity is that one trend that, that a lot of people don't know about, but we covered it in the book and I've covered it since, is that Africa's tech scene has extremely strong connections to the United States. And those connections are primarily, primarily the founders. So if you look a lot of, at a lot of Africa's founder class, um, there's a lot of what we call white collar dropouts and repatriates. Many of the top founders, almost every top founder that I know in Nigeria, uh, founders uh, like GB at Paystack or um, Sholak in Lada, who just exited Paste, or, or sorry, GB at Flutterwave, or Shola, who just uh, you know sold his company to to Stripe. Um, almost all of them have backgrounds in the US. They studied here. You know, the CEO of Paga Payments in Nigeria studied here. Uh, Juliana Rotish, who was a big figure in Kenya's tech scene, has a degree from the United States. So many of the founder class actually worked and studied in the US and many of them were actually working in US companies before they, they dropped out and went back to Africa. And on top of that, they have very strong relationships with the US. So, They've been, you know, talking to 
VCs, and they've also started to work their way up into big tech. And those relationships have also had a big, uh, played a big part in fostering more U.S. corporate engagement, investment, and business development in Africa from a technology perspective. I'm not sure the U.S. government has tapped into that <laughs> or is even that, that aware of it. But when you get into some of these, these you know, I, I don't like the term, but the geostrategic conversations about the continent and China is doing this and China has this, this influence. One of the, the pieces of that that I think is vastly overlooked is that the U.S. has tremendous influence in Africa. It's just not necessarily coming from the government. It's in this technology ecosystem, the founders and the leaders of which have extremely strong ties and are drawing investment from U.S. corporate entities. And I'm not sure that the U.S. government and the various parts of the U.S. government policy apparatus that interact with Africa are fully aware of that. Well, you don't have to pull my leg to convince me the government's not aware of something. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we agree there. Um, okay. A couple of things here as we wrap up. First, you, you mentioned trends, predictions. Um, what Give us maybe one or two big things to look for uh, with Africa the next five years, A, and then B, uh, COVID aside, what are some of the biggest obstacles that Africa needs to overcome in the next five years? Well, the big trends I would say is I would say look for a continuation of many of the things we predicted in the next Africa. Uh, and one that I also left out was Africa's growing cultural influence. Uh, one thing we highlighted in the book is uh, when it comes to music and when it comes to movies, uh, for example, Nollywood, which is Nigeria's film industry, um, Africa and, and African musicians, African actors, African cultural forms, and also just African leaders, meaning people of African descent ascending to high levels globally, but also in the United States. I would look for that trend to continue. And even since we wrote the book, amazing things have happened, right? I mean, you have Nigerian artists um, like WizKid uh, playing on American radio, American mainstream radio stations. Um, you have, you have uh, Nollywood movies, which when we wrote the book, this was just a prediction. Nollywood movies and directors uh, who are getting deals with Netflix and you can stream Nigerian and African content uh, from your living room in the US um, uh, you know, on Netflix. Um, you also have a number of uh, African actors who are, you know, like uh, Lupita Nyong'o, who are going to start, they've already started directing in their own films and they're building creative capital in Hollywood. And then, of course, you saw Black Panther, which had a number of Nigerian actors and showed that an Africa-focused movie could become the, the, you know, one of the highest grossing films of all time. Um, I would watch for that to continue. And I also would watch for Africa, Africans as an immigrant group in the United States to continue to become more influential and powerful, right? So that's one big thing. When it comes to tech, I would say that I would watch out for big tech and large cap American tech, meaning Silicon Valley and our, our major tech establishments. I would watch for more engagement and I would watch for big tech starting to invest more in African startups and um, have demonstrated public commitments to invest more um, as part of their business extension. In terms of constraints, 
I think the continent faces the same constraints we all face. And it was something also that we tried to highlight in the book. And I don't know if you noticed, we put in an entire chapter called Deal Breakers, because one of the things that we wanted to, to highlight was, was balance and the fact that, um, unlo- you know, un- not unlike other places of the world, progress isn't a linear straight line. Uh, there are steps forward and steps back because that's just how humans operate. And Africa is no different. Um, I think one of the biggest constraints to progress, particularly in the technology sector, is just the operational constraints that startup founders who really want to go global. Um, some of them are looking beyond. They're looking even as, at their home markets as test markets where they build and they build a viable company and a viable use case and product platform, and they're already starting to go global. But they have infinitely more challenges when it comes to how much it costs to do business there, disadvantages in the cost of internet connectivity, um, disadvantages in physical infrastructure, and it's putting them at a disadvantage uh, to other startup sectors around the world. So that's something that um, if it's not dealt with and improved, it could seriously hamstring a lot of African tech companies. And one last prediction just on the positive side, and it's already starting to happen, is I would just look for more African startups to have a global view, meaning that um, they're going to use Africa as a platform to grow their companies, um, but they're going to be global tech players. And they either overtly or quietly Um, aren't just happy with being successful in Nigeria or building a model that works in Kenya or South Africa. Um, They want a seat at the big global founder table. And that's going to be tough for the reasons I said. But these folks have already overcome difficulties that would make the most hardened Silicon Valley entrepreneur cry. So I wouldn't put put it past that some of these African tech founders are going to break through, break through and not become African successful tech names. They're going to become global tech names, and it's perfectly within the realm of possibility. Okay, that is fantastic, and um, thank you for that. I, I will add one thing. You talk about African immigrants having a bigger impact in the U.S., and I can tell you, I can testify to that. I'm seeing that already. Uh, the group that I work with is based out of Houston, and uh, through them, they are African immigrants that live in Houston now, and through them, um, they have opened up all kinds of doors to Western Africa, I've gotten to meet ambassadors, got to meet the president of Ghana, got to meet all kinds of people. Yep. They're doing a lot of stuff in Houston um, because they are motivated, they're dedicated, and they're go-getters. And so it's exciting to see. Um, so I've seen that anecdotally. And so I think that you're, you're dead on that. And a lot of people, it's kind of one of those overnight success stories, right? You don't realize it's, hap- it's happening. And then one day you wake up and go, oh, wow, okay, this is where we're at now. And so I think that that's happening probably at a larger scale um, then maybe some of the listeners uh, recognize it. So I appreciate you. Well, you're, you're spot on. And it's actually funny you mentioned that because it's very common when you interact with Nigerians across the entire United States that they, they have area codes from Texas. <laughs> um, and uh, even for the book and, and just out of my curiosity, I dug into that. Nigeria, or Texas has one of the largest populations of Nigerians in the United States. Um, and I asked, like, I figured maybe it's the oil connection. It's not. It just has to do with how immigration happens and how families work. But to your point, um, I think that one good thing about the, Af- the, the modern African immigrant story, because let's remember, we have, we have another one that's at least the origins are kind of dark in slavery, 
is that it offsets so much xenophobia and negativity that comes around immigration right now. And I'm, I'm all for a balanced view. Um, I don't think that immigration, everything about it is great. And I think, you know, there, there are things you need to do like secure the borders and there are criminal elements in immigrant uh, communities, particularly coming from the South. But when it comes to African immigrants, statistically, they're doing exceptionally well. Um, and they do have that grit and that, that ambition that you're talking about. And one of the things just to wrap up on that we quoted in the book is by the last two Census uh, Bureau uh, measurements, the highest, the highest educated demographic in the United States is our African immigrants. And that's not the highest educated immigrant demographic. That's the highest educated demographic of any demographic, including um, native born Americans in the entire country. And you know that speaks volumes. No, absolutely. Okay. All right. Um, we mentioned the book a few times. We'll say it again. We'll link to it in the show notes so people can just go click there to find it. It's called The Next Africa. Um, we can find you on Twitter at Jake R. Bright. I'll link to that as well. Where else might you want to uh, send people um, if you know to find out more about what you got going on or, or follow your work? Yeah, I'm very active on LinkedIn. And um, one of the things I've been doing is is more recently, uh, I have an advisory where um, what I did is I took the book into, I, I worked with TechCrunch for several years, which is really the leading technology events and media platform for, for tech startups and VC in the world. And we built out pretty much everything that they do for Africa. We are do in general, we turn the switches on for Africa. But more recently, what I've been doing is I have an advisory and I've been working a lot in terms of brokering connections um, in the tech world between VCs, um, American tech, and African tech uh, actors, whether that's venture capitalists or um, growth stage startups. So that's where I've I've put a lot of my work now, and um, there's a lot that I'm doing there. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of interest and there's a lot of activity in terms of U.S. tech actors, U.S. investors doing things uh, from the U.S. to Africa, but also uh, there's a lot of activity from African tech actors and startup founders who are raising and or, like I mentioned, companies like Flutterwave or, um, or even Chipper Cash is another one. They're co-locating their startups in both Africa and the U.S. to fully take advantage of both markets. So I'm in the middle of a lot of that stuff, and it's very exciting right now. Yeah, sounds very much exciting. I just found you on LinkedIn, so I will link to that in the show notes again, show notes uh, again for the listeners who want to connect with you. Um, this has been fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Jake, best of luck to you in the future. Listeners, uh, we will be back. I think this comes out on Thursday, so next Tuesday.